Welcome back to RUF. Hope you guys had a good fall break and uh, are ready to get back into the, the thick of the second half of the semester. But welcome back. We're going to continue our study through the book of Psalms. And if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Psalm chapter 73. As returning, let me tell you a little bit about this psalm. It's written by a man named Asaph. He lived during the days of King David. In fact, 1 Chronicles 16 tells us that he was one of David's chief musicians. And so, in short, this man that wrote this psalm, Asaph, was an older man, a mature Christian leader. And to be more specific, he was a worship leader. And so... It's interesting, as we read through this psalm in a second, you'll, you'll get to, you'll understand what I mean, but oftentimes when we think about Christian leaders today, we think of people that are upbeat, that are extroverted, energetic, optimistic, full of energy, always smiling and always happy. Not ASAP. In fact, we see quite the opposite with them. Instead, we see someone that is downbeat, introspective, melancholy, someone that is struggling. And through the darkness and through his struggle comes music, the song, that has helped believers for centuries through their doubts, through their struggles, and through their darkness. Out of the darkness, Asaph saw the glories of grace. And I think you'll see what, what I mean as we read through this psalm. As we read through one of the most profound psalms in the entire Psalter. So please stand and hear God's word it is, as it is found in Psalm 73. Follow along with me as I read. This is God's word. Truly God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet almost slipped. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they had no pains until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, How can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, Then I discern their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. 
You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the scripture. Thank you for the honesty of this psalm. I pray that you would use this psalm to encourage us. To encourage specifically those that struggle with doubt. Those that wonder if this is all really true. All really worth it. Would you encourage our hearts this evening? Would you open up this passage to us through your Spirit and apply it to our lives? In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. John Calvin called this psalm, or really the whole book of Psalms, I should say, he referred to it as an anatomy of all parts of the soul. And so I believe that a study of the book of Psalms would be deficient if we didn't deal with the emotion of doubt. I believed it would be deficient. And so we're going to look at what this passage says about doubt this evening. Oz Guinness uh, is a writer, and he wrote a book which is titled Doubt. And listen to this. He says, The world of faith, of the Christian faith, is not a fairy tale. It is not a make-believe world, question-free and problem-proof. But it is a world where doubt is never far from faith's shoulder. Let me say that again. It's a world, the Christian life is a world where doubt is never far from faith's shoulder. And if you look at this psalm that we just read, it sure wasn't far from the psalmist as he wrote Psalm 73. And if you're honest, And if I'm honest, there have been times in in our lives when we have struggled with doubting whether or not Christianity is really true. In fact, I would go as far as to say that tonight, if you have never doubted anything that we've talked about in RUF, as you've come week in and week out, if you've never doubted whether everything that we've said and had doubts about something and whether or not it's true, I would say that you're either self-deluded or you're an immature Christian. Because the truth is, you cannot grow in your faith unless you face the possibility of not having faith or the reality of not having faith at all. Let me say that again. You cannot grow in your faith unless you face the reality of not having faith. And so tonight, we're going to look at doubt. Because the Bible talks about doubt. It is raw, it is real, 
as we read through this passage. And so we're going to talk about what doubt is. We're going to talk about what um, causes doubt. And then thirdly and finally, we're going to talk about how to get through doubt. First thing is, what is doubt? Look at verse 1, if you have your outline. We're just going to go through this passage. Asaph begins this psalm by affirming that God is good. And most of the time, he says, he's, God is good to the pure in heart. And as with many psalms, this is not, the opening words is not just an introduction. It's not just laying out the theme for what the uh, author is going to speak about. But no, what is going on here is the psalmist is affirming his conclusions. He's basically opening up uh, of the end that he has come to after he has struggled and struggled. He's basically starting with the conclusion uh, of what, you know, the struggle has, uh, how it's worked itself out. And Asaph is saying, despite everything in my experience, everything in me to the contrary, and everything I see around me, I still confess that God is good to his people. However, as you... If you listen, you know that that struggle or that belief and confession didn't come easily. It didn't come quickly, but it came slowly. It came through doubt, and it came through a crisis of faith. One commentator said uh, doubt, uh, he defined it this way, that the heart of doubt is a divided heart. Mind you, it's not schizophrenia. Though it often feels that way, it is simply not knowing which way to go. To pick up on verse 2 in the metaphor, doubt means that you don't have a place to put your feet that isn't slippery. Everywhere you step, you seem to lose your footing. Some of you know what it's like. If you've ever climbed a, a mountain or a hill or even a flight of steps, And as you're climbing and you get near the top and you miss a step or you lose your footing and you slip and your entire balance is thrown off at that moment, your heart begins to race, your uh, adrenaline begins to pump, and then you regain your balance. And once you regain your balance, you realize how close you were to losing it all. Anybody had that happen? Oh man, it's, it's, a, it's a scary thing because you realize like one misstep or one more you know, move to the left or right, you could have lost everything. Either you could have gotten hurt really bad or you could have fallen to your death. That is what the psalmist feels like spiritually. The psalmist feels like his feet are moving and slipping, that he has no solid place to put his uh, feet, no solid rock to stand on. Some of you know what that feels like spiritually. You're either there now, or you've been there at some point in your life, or you will be there at some point, more than likely. But it is, you feel this secure at one moment, then at the very next minute you feel there's no stable ground beneath you. Why did Asaph feel this way? Why does he feel like he is slipping? What is causing his doubts? Well, that leads us to our next point. And in a word, what's causing his doubts is he is struggling with injustice. 
in the world. Look at verse 3. For I envied the arrogance when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The psalmist is saying, there are people that I see around me that don't give a rip about God. That don't care at all about God's ways or doing what He says in His Word. And they seem to be doing better than anyone. And he doesn't get it. Look at what he says here. Basically, what's happening is they think that Asaph is a fool for believing in God. If you look at the passage, they think he's a fool. And their lives are backing up their convictions. Look at verses 4 and 5. They don't get sick. They're confident about their lives. Verse 6. They feel good. Life is going well for them. Verses 7 through 10. They live like there's no tomorrow. Live in life. Live in large, if you will. Verse 12. They have all the material wealth that they need. And Asaph says, it isn't fair. It isn't fair. I don't get it. And I would say that you must wrestle. Please say you have wrestled with this issue. If you're a Christian, you have to have wrestled with this. If not, you should. I think there is far too much of this spirit among Sanford students in which they secretly believe in a world that ultimately makes perfect sense in their mind. In a world that is far too neat and far too secure. For example, most of us, including myself, have grown up with this formula for blessing. A plus B equals C. If I do A plus and B really well, then I'm going to get C. I deserve C. God will give me C. And if somebody doesn't do A and B very well, or they mess up, or they're slack, then they deserve C. Think about it. Most of us say things in our minds or in our hearts like when we pass the homeless guy on the street down at five points. Things like, he's getting what he deserves. He's lazy. Get a job, man. Or we say things about the girl, uh, the rebellious girl on our hall. Like, man, her parents must have been way slack and way too lenient for her to behave like that. Or the guy with the drug problem or alcohol problem. Man, he just doesn't have any willpower. Come on, get with the program. But Asaph is brutally honest here about the fact that sometimes it's very hard for us to justify God's ways to man. A few years ago, obviously before Susie and I had children, we actually struggled with infertility. Struggled, wondering if we would even be able to have children. God has since obviously blessed us richly, but it was a very difficult season in our lives. If you have known anybody that's gone through that, if not, you can imagine uh, the pain and the struggle. We had a hard time. And I, I can remember, and Susie and I would pray, and we would think and talk and say things like this, God, what are you doing? Why are you allowing this to happen to us? We have been so faithful to you. 
We left our jobs. We left our families. We're in seminary. We're going into the ministry. And this is what we get? Come on. This doesn't make sense. We would say things like that. We would say things like, Come on. God, I don't get it. We want to have children. We want to raise them in a Christian home. And there are millions of people that are having children that don't even want them. That want to abort them. And you're doing this to me? What's the deal? Now, I was in seminary. Did I not know my theology? Absolutely not. I knew my theology. Like Asaph. He knew his theology. I know that God doesn't promise health, wealth, and prosperity to his people. But like Asaph, when I was struggling, when we were struggling, you tend to ask questions just like he's asking in the midst of his struggle. Do you feel the weight of this? Do you feel the weight of Asaph's statement in verse 13? Look at that. Really strong. He says, All in vain have I kept my heart clean. So he's saying, Man, I'm living holy. I'm trying to do it for you, God. And he's saying, All in vain have I kept my heart clean. There's a translation called The Message. I don't really recommend it for your Bible study, but it is fun to read. Uh, and it really sheds and brings some passages to life. Um, And listen to what the message says for these verses. It says, I've been stupid to play by the rules. What has it gotten me? A long run of bad luck. That's what. A slap in the face every time I walk out the door. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. Yet look at these people. They don't love God. They don't serve God. They only serve themselves. And they are better off than I. Asaph doubts because he looks out at the world and it doesn't seem like justice is at the will. There's one more thing I want us to look at here before we move on to how we deal with our doubts. Notice what his honesty reveals in this passage. His honesty really unmasked the true motive behind his question. What is it? What's the true motive? Envy. That's really the root of our doubts. In other words, most of the time, here's what I'm saying, that our doubting is not a result of this genuinely intellectual problems with Christianity. Most of the time, our struggle and our doubts is simply selfishness. Simply self-pity. A desire for control. A desire to be in charge. A desire to have something that we don't have. That's the root, oftentimes, of our doubts. And friends, envy is the beginning of everyone's downfall. We don't talk about envy much. When's the last time you've heard a sermon on envy? Probably not real recently. But friends, it is a serious problem and something that needs to be dealt with. So let me ask you, who do you envy this evening? Where are you struggling with envy? Do you envy the friend with the new car? 
or the girl that gets everything she wants? Do you envy the person in your class that's smarter than you, that always studies just a little bit and knocks it out of the park on every test? Girls, do you envy the girl on the treadmill next to you that has a body that's way better than you? Do you? Do you envy the girl that always gets the boyfriend, that seems to always have all the guys asking her out? Where are you struggling with envy this evening? Again, it's something that we don't talk about much. But it's something we need to take seriously. Envy is killing people today. It just about killed Asaph's faith. And the question before us tonight, and that I want to ask you, is is it killing yours? So we see here that Asaph's crisis arose from observing that the wicked were actually prospering. But let's look at how he deals with his doubts. Look at verse 17. He shows us here what he does when he is struggling with doubts. He enters into the sanctuary. Asaph, when he's discouraged, when he is downhearted and he looks at the injustice around him, he walks into the sanctuary and he starts to change. Notice the whole psalm changes right there. He starts to change. Why does he change? What does he see? He walks into the sanctuary and he sees three things. First, look at verses 18 through 20. He's reminded that the wicked, though they appear to prosper, they will be punished in the life to come. Look at verse 18. It says that God will arise like someone waking up out of a dream. And then make all things right. He will cast down those that ignore Him and reject Him. It will not matter how rich people are, how beautiful people are, how much money people have, how big a homes they have, how much stuff they have. The only thing that will matter is that they neglected the most important relationship in their life. And that's the relationship with God. That's the first thing he sees, is that the wicked will get theirs in due time. Verses 18 through 20. Then secondly, 21 through 24, he goes into the sanctuary and he also sees that believers, though they are suffering, and though things might not appear to be working out perfectly... They will get their reward. Their life will be celebrated when Jesus returns and brings them home. Look at verse 24. It says, Afterwards you will receive me to glory. The psalmist realized this, that for the Christian, everything that is sad will come untrue. Everything that is sad will come untrue. I love verse 23. It says, Though Asaph's feet had almost slipped, It says he knew that God was always with him. And so that should be a huge struggle for you, or a huge encouragement for you as you think about that statement. Because some of you tonight are struggling. And you're struggling and you're thinking, man, I'm not holding on to God very well. I just feel like I don't hold on to Him very well. You've missed the point. 
The point is, is not how well you hold on to God. The point is, is how secure He holds on to you. With His mighty right hand. Look at that verse. He is holding on to you, friends. And if you're worried about how well you're holding on to Him, you're focused on yourself and not on Him. Focus on Him and how strong that hand is that is holding you up. He is always with you. He is always guiding you. Even though you think your feet are slipping, He is with you, loving you, accepting you, holding you securely. Thirdly, look at verse 25. The psalmist is reminded in the sanctuary that life on earth uh, is always going to leave you wanting more. Verse 25, it says, Spoon have I in heaven but you. There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And so, that's, that's pretty self-explanatory. The psalmist knows that life's joys, that life's pleasures are short-lived, and that we're always going to need something more to make us happy on earth. We're always going to need another, and another, and another, and nothing will truly satisfy until we meet Jesus. Because as the psalmist says, Jesus is our strength. Jesus is our portion forever. He is the one that satisfies our deepest longings. Friends, it's in the sanctuary that our lives are reordered. That we can make sense out of the chaos in the, in the world and in our lives. And so dealing with doubt is hardly ever a purely intellectual exercise. Oftentimes our questions and life dissolve when we get our eyes off of ourselves and when we praise and focus them on God and worship Him alone. I can't tell you the number of times over the last couple of years that people have come in, come to argue out. They've been doubting. I know they're struggling. Doubting with their assurance of salvation. All kinds of things. They come to argue out. And then after all that, they come up to me and they say, Man, this was so good for me. I'm so glad I came. You just don't know how much better I feel. I really needed this. Why? Why? Because they came in to the sanctuary. They sang the truth into their hearts as we sang the hymns and the choruses. They heard God's Word preached. They were reminded of what was true and what was real. That's why they felt encouraged and felt better about where they were spiritually. The movie A Beautiful Mind, you've probably seen it. It's a true story about a man named John Nash. He was a brilliant mathematician and he started out in the movie You know, he was a student at Princeton University. And throughout the first half of the movie, we meet his friends or people in his life. And it's not until about halfway through the movie that we realize that they don't really exist. They only exist in his mind. And it's then that we realize that Nash, as brilliant as he is, is a paranoid schizophrenic. But we know that if you've seen the movie, he begins to change 
when he starts to understand that the people in his life aren't real. And he starts to understand that when after years of being delusioned, he one day, it clicks for him that the little girl in his life never ages. She never changes. And you see, it was that brief, small glimpse of reality that led Nash onto the pathway of change, onto the pathway of transformation. Entering the sanctuary, friends, worshiping God does the exact same thing for us. Worship gives us a glimpse of reality and truth. It clicks something on in our hearts and causes us to understand that God's ways are really truer than what our experience dictates to us. And that is why it is so important for us to gather in places like RUF. It's important for you to gather on Sunday morning in your local church for worship because we come together and we sing the truth into one another's hearts. Sure, we sing to our own hearts. We sing to God. But we also sing corporately to one another and remind one another of what is true and what is real. That's why I love some of the songs we sing at RUF. Because they're so raw. They're so real. They're so honest. But then they also point us to our only hope and to our only uh, thing that is real and that is true. Some of you are struggling with doubt. Some of you are ready to throw in the towel on this whole Christianity thing because it's not working. You thought life was going to get better. Instead, life seems to be getting worse. And so you're ready to chunk it. Let me ask you, will you come with us here in just a second? Will you come with us into the sanctuary as we worship God here in a few minutes? Will you come and will you be reminded of what is true? I hope you will. I hope you'll be encouraged as we sing songs into one another's hearts in a few minutes. Before we stand and pray, stand and sing, let me pray for you.